Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Talking about evangelism, um, first Wednesday worship, uh, and we're, we're kind of strategic in that. We feel like we... As a church, for the past few years, I uh, have really been inwardly focused uh, in a good way. I think um, evaluating our membership and wanting to become healthy uh, in that way in regards to membership. Uh, but, you know, you can only do so many things well at one time. And so I, we as a staff just kind of felt like we have not been uh, pressing uh, the issue of evangelism. We haven't uh, corporately been pursuing, uh, holding one another accountable, and that's, that's just kind of the season we were in. And so we thought we, we, we'll take the, the first Wednesday worships going into the fall and just examine uh, what, it, what evangelism is. What are we doing when we say that word, uh, when we understand that God's called us to testify to his goodness and grace in the gospel? What, what does that mean? And so we broke it up into three messages, uh, the, the motivation of evangelism, which is extremely important, uh, examining the motivation for why we would share, uh, ultimately obedience to Jesus because he told us to share, uh, but also to the glory of God, that God gets glory when sinners repent and turn to him. And so we want to glorify God in that. Uh, we glorify God in our obedience to Christ, uh, but also the motivation of the good for lost people, uh, that there is actual forgiveness There's actual atonement, even as we studied Sunday, that the high priest has sat down. And so we offer people a message where they no longer have to work for their favor with God, uh, that they could never achieve that never-ending staircase. And Christ has sat down and he is seated and the work is finished. And so we have great news to tell people for the good of lost people. Uh, And I'm, I'm coming to find out that, you know, motivation is extremely important. Uh, the desires of your heart, uh, because the heart that is set on obedience to Christ will, will, will pursue obedience. And the heart that doesn't want to share the gospel, that is not rightly motivated, will find any and every excuse to not share the gospel when opportunities arise. I know that out of my own sinful heart, is that if my heart is not right before the Lord, my motivations are not healthy, I'll grasp onto anything as a cop-out to not interject the gospel in this conversation for whatever reason. And so the motivation of why we share is extremely important. Uh, But then Blake uh, preached a message. The first was Brother David uh, on the motivation. Secondly, Blake preached, uh, what is the gospel? The message of evangelism. What is it that we are sharing uh, that brings people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? And, And Blake just preached a thorough examination of the gospel. What is it? What is the good news? Because I'm fearful that a lot of some of our or a lot of our conversations with unbelievers, uh, we might be thinking that we're sharing the gospel, but it is a specific message of the work of Christ that saves people. And so when I talk to lost people and I say, well, the Lord's created a beautiful day today, that is not evangelism. Or even sometimes when I give my testimony, uh, my testimony is a good platform for me to interject what the gospel is, but you can tell your testimony and it not be the gospel. Uh, you can do apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of the faith, uh, talking to atheists or agnostics or 
people of other religions or skeptics and giving a defense for the gospel, giving a defense, as Peter says, for the hope that is within us. Sometimes you can do apologetics and just leave people lost affirming that there is a God and never get to the gospel. And so it's important that we examine what what is the message of evangelism? And Blake did a great job of explaining it's, it's the work of Christ, that it involves uh, certain truths that must be communicated for people to be saved. And we believe that. We believe that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the preaching of God's word, through the word of Christ. And every single encounter with unbelievers, we don't necessarily have to get in all of that truth. It may be a process over a period of years where we where we build this relationship and we share the gospel. Sometimes you have the opportunity just to share the full thing. And, that's, and so we need both of those. But the message is extremely important. Uh, and if we get the message wrong, all of our methods won't matter, right? I mean, you see how these kind of build on one another, that the motivation goes to the heart of why we're doing what we're doing and being obedient to Christ. And the message is the it's the message of God. It's God's gospel. And so if we get that wrong, it doesn't really matter our method. And so we have to know what we're preaching. And so we're going to look, lastly, uh, at the method of evangelism. And so let me just ask a question. We can talk back and forth tonight. This is more of a teaching than necessarily preaching, although both will be involved. But what do you think I mean when I say the method of evangelism? How would you define method? So feel free. You just Okay, the process. Yeah, the plan you have outlined. What else? What's included in the method? We think speak up. Yeah. Yeah. How do I steer a conversation towards the gospel? Uh, what do you say? Words. Words. Absolutely. <laughs> so when we talk about method, it's, it's, we're partly talking about the way that we frame the message, uh, the, the framing of that truth. So somebody give me some methods that are normal in uh, evangelical culture. Like what would be a method of framing the truth of the gospel? like in a way that you can explain it. What are some of the names for those? Romans Road is one of those. What else? Absolutely, three crosses. Kind of outline the, the man who responded the right way, Christ in the middle and the man who rejected him. Yeah, creation of Christ, just beginning in the beginning, right? And leading up to what Christ has done. What else? Any others that pop into your, to your mind? Bible storing, just telling the story of the gospel. The way of the master, utilizing the law, the Ten Commandments, and helping people see their inability to keep it and that they be guilty before God and pointing them to Christ. Um, four spiritual laws. So, there, so even just here talking, we, there have been so many methods that have come to us. And all of them useful in specific ways. Some better than others, I'm sure they would argue, but they're varied. Uh, so it's answering that question. How do I frame the gospel? Uh, and there are some creative and helpful ways to do that uh, that we should take advantage of. Uh, I think it's also included the method of where, where am I going to share? Um, 
you know, how, how, do, how do I approach unbelievers? Uh, where are the unbelievers that are consistently in my life? I handed, or Brandon and Kenneth handed you something, and I want you to fill that out later, but that just outlines who are the people, right? Who are the people in my family? Who are the people in where I have recreation, where I live geographically? It's on the screen. So, um, you know, who are the people, you know, that I can go to and share with that are in my regular rhythms, my family, uh, where I live, where I shop, where I get gas, where I, you know, where I buy groceries, uh, and just outlining who are these people. So method includes, I believe, the people. Uh, but even how, you know, how do, I, how do we go about this? Uh, and I didn't, I didn't pick the topics for who was going to preach what. I don't know who did, but method is pretty difficult to try and outline just because there are so many methods. There are obviously some methods that are worse than others, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I examined the method and I was like, yeah, okay, I can outline a method. Then I started studying and I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like there, there are 15 different methods. How am I supposed to focus on one? Um, but if, I think if we're honest, uh, our issue, our biggest issue in not sharing the gospel is not method. Uh, maybe that's just me. Uh, when, I, when I am disobedient to an opportunity that's cl- clearly presented itself or I cower down or I fear man, it really doesn't have to do with the method or how I frame it. It has more to do with my heart, uh, that that's not the biggest issue. It may be an issue, and I think it's wise for us to examine how can, I better, how can we better equip you uh, to be more confident in the gospel and the message and competent to share that, but that I think... I don't think that method is our biggest issue, uh, that it's, it's really at the heart level. Uh, but even in light of that, we're going to look at uh, the method of evangelism. Um, so let's just look and examine. So when we think about the method in which we share, we must understand, and if you follow your outline, that the message, the message is central. And I've kind of already touched on that. That the message, if we get the message wrong, the method does not matter. Um, I'm not going to focus on one method tonight uh, because I think that would be unwise and would limit us in, the, in the, the broad arsenal that God has given us for how we're to frame the gospel or even get to the gospel. Uh, because we must understand that the method is going to vary, even from generation to generation and from culture to culture. The, gener- the, the method of evangelism varies, but the message of evangelism does not. And that regardless of our method, the central tenets of the message remain the same. Is that we've got to explain who God is. We've got to explain uh, the fall of man, the sinfulness of man. What is wrong with us? We explain redemption. Just kind of what we've outlined, even in that book, What is the Gospel? That we've read and we've passed out to to some of the other church family to read. It's super helpful because it has four letters, God or G-M-C-R, and it's God, man, Christ response. And again, that's just another way of framing the gospel message. But all of the methods have to have in them that. They have to have the central tenets of what it is to have saving faith. And so uh, the truth of God, the message of the gospel is fixed in the heavens and it, it never changes. And that is a huge encouragement to me that even if culture changes and it does, that the gospel does not. And, and how much do we change? I mean, our views change, our maturity changes, our looks change over time. Uh, we all get older, we all get wrinkled up. Um, 
But we are changing people in an ever-changing culture. I mean, that's just the reality of it. We live in a culture that uh, maybe it's just as you get older, but I feel like it's changing faster the older that I get. And maybe that's just one of the byproducts of getting older. But it's this revolving door of change in the culture, how we communicate, how we dress. I mean, it's, it's about like fashion, that it changes from one day to the next. Uh, what the culture and the people around us, what they fundamentally believe changes. Uh, the culture evolves and shifts and updates, but the gospel, again, remains steadfast. And, and it's ever relevant to any culture throughout any time in every age. And there have been attempts, again, to, you know, maybe we need to alter the message uh, to fit a better method to reach certain people. And there are many who have done that today, and they've ended up watering down the gospel and changing the very thing that brings saving faith in the lives of unbelievers. And we must not do that. Our confidence, again, as, as we think about method, our confidence cannot be drawn from the method in which we present the gospel. It has to be drawn from the message and the God of the message. Uh, and our confidence can't come in our ability to, to give a polished presentation, uh, that it has to be in the gospel message itself. Uh, methods ebb and flow, but it's the substance of our message that is the power of God unto salvation. So I'm arguing tonight that we should not be hard fixed on one specific method in reaching unbelievers. Uh, I think uh, the wide variety of methods gives us more tools to utilize in reaching specific people with specific needs from specific backgrounds. And so not fixed on one message, and I'm arguing also that, that not only is the message central, to our method, that the message of the gospel has to be central in the life of the Christian, and that impacts our evangelism greatly. And what do I mean by that? Uh, that the message of the gospel must be central in our lives as believers. And so the, the message of, of what God has done in Christ is not just a tool for us to wield in, in this evangelism endeavor, but it really is the source of all motivation, the source of all joy, the source of all life for the Christian. Uh, that the, the gospel is central for us as Christians. It's the greatest news to us. It's the central tenet of our faith. It's the hope of our lives. The gospel really changes everything for us and should be at the center of our life going into evangelism. And those who have a shallow, low view of the gospel will probably speak very little of that message. But those who will give themselves to meditate on and to savor on uh, what God has done in Christ for them personally will, will then be greater motivated to go and share that good news with others. That, well, out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. And so the message of the gospel is, is our motivation. It's our source of life and strength. Um, and I've seen even in my own life, seasons where, I'm not meditating on what God has done for me in Christ and just how my whole demeanor changes and how even morning by morning when I'm not contemplating the gospel and meditating on God's word and what he's done for me in Christ, I'm, I tend to be more closed off to opportunities. I tend to be less sensitive to unbelievers that live around me or work around me or that I encounter in the grocery store at the gas station. But the mornings when I'm contemplating Christ and thinking upon Christ and what he's done for me in the gospel, I'm way more open and humble and sensitive and anxious to, to speak of what God has done for me in the gospel. 
And so the gospel must be central for our life as Christians, uh, as our source of motivation. But I also believe that the, the, the more we meditate on what God has done for you and for us in Christ, the better equipped we will be to talk to people about that truth. Is that if you spend little time thinking about the gospel, digging into the depths of the gospel, uh, just praising God for what he's done in your life for the gospel, uh, you're not going to have much to say to an unbeliever. But the, the deeper you meditate, the longer you linger on the deep truth of the gospel, the better equipped you're going to be to talk to unbelievers about what's going on in their life. Because let me explain, there, there is no situation or season or sphere of life that the gospel does not impact, that the gospel does not impact, doesn't touch on, doesn't influence. Let me give you an example. So let's say you come into contact with someone this week who is all up in arms about the elections or any election, and their hope is clearly placed in in human government. Now, as a Christian, you have an answer for that because of what the gospel has done in your life and how it changes what your hope is in and how it changes your views on who's in control, who bring, raises up leaders, who tears down leaders. And so you, as a result of you contemplating, thinking upon what God has done for you in Christ, you're able to give them the hope that they need and where it's misplaced. Think about the ways that the gospel changes human suffering and how varied and uh, human suffering is from physical suffering to broken relationships to foster care to unmet expectations to the loss of, of the job. All of these things pointing to the fact that there is something wrong. And so the deeper we understand the gospel and how it's changed our perspective on all of those things, the more equipped we are then to give them the hope and the answers that they need. And so it's, it's helpful to ask the question when talking to unbelievers and they're, they're sharing suffering or experiences, how does the gospel change these things? And how can I use this scenario in their life and beeline it to the gospel which changes it? And so I'm, I'm just arguing that the better we know the message the more equipped we will be in changing circumstances and opportunities to share it. And it's actually the deep meditation of God's message in the gospel that allows you to experience its depth and be better equipped to share with unbelievers and whatever they're going through in every situation in life. Because that's the, that's the truth of the gospel for us. It changes everything. It changes our outlook on everything. Every situation, whether it's raising children, whether it's suffering, uh, whether it's good things that we enjoy temporarily here on earth, that the gospel touches those things. And so the deeper you understand those realities, the better equipped you're going to be when your coworker or neighbor comes to you and says that their parent has died or that they've just lost their job or that they've won the lottery and they love money way too much, that you'll be able to speak to that and beeline it to the gospel. And it's different for every person. That's why I'm not focusing on one method because the way that you would share the gospel or at least get to the truth of the gospel for somebody who has just won the lottery is much different than someone who has just lost a parent. Do you see that? Do you see how the inroads that get to the work of Christ are much different? And so we have to understand how the gospel applies to all of life, all of life. And I think Jesus models this in his ministry. 
you know, we just got through over the past eight years going through the book of Luke and we, uh, we saw, I love the, the book of Luke. It, it really highlights Jesus's interaction with lost and broken people. I think there's a lot to be learned in just Jesus, the conversationalist and how he interacts and relates and talks to and meets the needs of people. But not one interaction is the same except really the, the Pharisees. I mean, he's always warning them. Uh, but Jesus heals a paralytic in Luke chapter five. And, and says, who has the authority to forgive sins? And he says, you know, he forgives this guy's sins. It's a different experience. This man is a paralytic. When Jesus calls his disciples in Luke chapter five, that invitation is much different than the other invitations right in the gospel in some, in some degree in, in the gospel of Luke. Um, in Luke chapter seven, the sinful woman who uh, puts the ointment on Jesus's feet and washes his feet with her tears uh, says to Peter, Jesus says to Peter, she's been forgiven much because she's sinned much. And so she's expressed her love for Christ. And so that, that's even a different scenario and, and different people from different backgrounds and experiences. And Jesus doesn't share a different message with them, but the way that he shares it is much different case to case. Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 29, uh, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so uh, this is the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him. He uses way of the master. That's probably where they get it. He, he says, you must keep the entire law. You must love the Lord your God. You, you, know, you must obey the commandments. Trying to help him see that he doesn't obey the, the commandments. And so that's specifically catered. That's his method to help him understand his fallenness so that he can give him eternal life. Luke 11, Jesus warns the Pharisees, woe to the Pharisees. And so there may be, Interactions with lost people where a warning is necessary. I mean, there are tons of people who were former members uh, who give no evidence whatsoever. They may be religious. They may claim that they're Christians, but there's no evidence whatsoever. I mean, a warning might be appropriate because Jesus warns those who, are, who have hard hearts and are religious outwardly. Um, Jesus in Luke chapter 14 reminds uh, his followers, that it's costly. You must hate father and mother. And so you, you would have maybe a Muslim uh, who is being uh, tempted to deny Christ because of familial ties. And we know the, the effects in Muslim culture of, of a child who professes faith in Christ, that they, they disown him, might have a funeral for him. And so uh, that might be appropriate for that person. So you see how different these approaches are that Jesus has. In Luke chapter 18, uh, before he talks about the, uh, the Good Samaritan, it says that he told the parable of the Good Samaritan to those who trusted themselves that they were righteous, but treated others with contempt. And so Christ was specific in what he shared based on the individual. Uh, the Samaritan woman, Jesus knows her story. It's an it's a off-the-cuff account, and he goes out of his way to meet this woman but the way that he shares the truth with her is much different because he knows her background, her experience, and what she, the truth that she needs to hear that will lead her to eternal life. In Acts chapter 17, Paul speaks differently with the Christians in Athens than he does with those who have a Jewish background. But ultimately, he gets to the gospel. And so I'm just trying to make the case that the better we understand the gospel, uh, we're going to encounter people of all stripes not one case is the same. People are, are complicated and complex with issues and sin patterns. And, and we have to know them well enough to, to, to get into their life and to, 
to share the gospel and how it applies to them specifically. How we would share with a Buddhist might be different than how we would share with a Muslim or a Hindu or a Jewish friend. And so trying to emphasize one method, I think, limits the capacity to reach people of different stripes, backgrounds, and even religions. Um, While all these situations ultimately get to the gospel, they are varied in approach and how, how we move in that way. So, so there's not just one method. Uh, I think it's helpful to evaluate. I've got this lost person in my life. This is their background. What would be the best way for me to get the gospel to them? You know, what would be the, the, the wisest way based on their experience to explain the gospel to them? And that requires a relationship. It requires personal knowledge. It requires some, some asking and befriending and seeking on our part. Uh, but I think that work is, is not in vain. So not just one method. The message is central in all of our methods. It's the gospel that saves. But I also want to move to, to look at uh, people. So people I have on your outline over programs. People over programs. Um, and that has kind of has two elements to it and how I explain what I mean by people over programs uh, when it comes to evangelism. First is uh, that the best approach, I think the best way to reach people in our church is if you are equipped to share the gospel. That if every single Christian that is a part of Lucy Baptist is equipped to share the gospel as opposed to an evangelistic program. Uh, Evangelistic programs aren't wrong in and of themselves. And at times they can be fruitful. What do I mean by program? Usually a big event, larger event, geared towards reaching unbelievers with at some point during that event an evangelistic message. Uh, And again, there's a place for those things. I'm just arguing that it might not be the most efficient And so if we were to focus on one area of evangelism in the life of our church, I would say a program would not be it or an outreach program um, or a strategy that's heavy on method or training and stats. Uh, I want to read a a quote from Max Stiles, and he talks about programs, evangelistic programs, and kind of the detriment that they've brought uh, to the life of the church. And Max is the, the guy who wrote Uh, the nine marks evangelism book that Brother David mentioned when he preached. And he says this. He says, Yet we seem to have an insatiable hunger for programs to accomplish evangelism. He says, Why? Programs are like sugar. An illustration I feel like I can understand. They're tasty, even addictive. However, it takes away desire for more healthy food. Though it provides a quick burst of energy over time and makes you flabby and a steady diet will kill you. A strict diet of evangelism, evangelistic programs produces malnourished evangelism, personal evangelism based on the individual. Just as eating sugar can make us feel as if we've eaten when we haven't, programs can often make us feel as if we've done evangelism when we haven't. So we should have a healthy unease with programs. Again, he's not demonizing programs. We should use them strategically, but in moderation, remembering that God did not send an event, but he sent his son, which I thought was a a powerful word. And so programs are good that the church serves together, that we all come together with a common goal of reaching a specific audience. And whatever we do, we make a public stand for Christ, which are all good things. But sometimes when we do programs, bigger events, the reality is very little real evangelism happens. 
big programmatic event sometimes can keep people from engaging individuals. Um, and the reality is, is that people reach people. How, how basic is that? We know that. People reach people and programs do not. And so you, if you were to ask the question, well, what is the evangelistic program of Lucy Baptist? Um, I would argue I would find our church directory and I would bring it to you and I would say, you, you are the program. You are the strategy. You are the method uh, that we're going to reach unbelievers. Uh, that we believe that, I believe the Bible argues that every Christian is an ambassador for Christ, doing his bidding and his work in a foreign nation that we don't really belong or fit in. Uh, the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is given to every single confessing believer in Christ. And it looks different for different people. The goal of this is not to shame us that we don't share the gospel enough because the gospel, you know, if, if, if we were saved based on our gospel sharing, we would all be condemned. Uh, this is based on the work of Christ. We can rest in that uh, and be motivated by that. That, that it's not our evangelism or our, our day-to-day sharing that earns us favor with God. We, none of us would have much, much favor. Um, but you are, you are our method. Um, it's, it's people, it's equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. As Paul says in the book of Ephesians, uh, we avoid, we try and avoid a programmatic mindset when it comes to evangelism because we feel like you are way better equipped to reach the people that are specifically in your life. And, and the reality is we would never be able to gather all of the people that you have contact with on a week-to-week basis in one big event. And we would argue that that would not be the most effective use of our time, that you were with them on a much more consistent basis, whoever they are. You know their stories, their backgrounds, you know their challenges, their barriers, and you are able to reach the people in your network and circle of influence way better than I am. Um, You are our program. People, every member is an evangelist, and we are a steward of the gospel. We are a, God has given us, First uh, Corinthians, you know, Paul, Paul says, I did not come with eloquent speech or words of wisdom. And he says that I proclaim the gospel of God, the good news of God, that it's God's message, not something that an evangelist right after Jesus ascended came up with. It is the message of the gospel. It is God's. He owns it and he gives it to us to steward um, that we are recipients of the greatest gift ever given. And not only are we commanded to evangelize, Goodness, what a privilege it is. And I am just as guilty as you are as these evangelistic opportunities. I just, so many times I feel like it's a burden. I'm going to have to force my way into this awkward conversation. How's this going to go? And, and what a sad attitude to have that, that God has given me a privilege, that despite my sin, uh, that he's called me uh, to the front lines in advancing his kingdom through the proclamation of the message that saves. And so, not only does people over programs mean that you are the method, that, that you are an evangelist in some senses uh, to speak life into those of your network of influence, but also it's a call that, that we invest uh, deeply and relationally into lost people, uh, that it's people that we're reaching. Uh, they're individuals. Uh, I believe that you should be equipped Again, because you, you will have unique opportunities that I would never have and will never have. Uh, and nobody else in this church will have. You have neighbors that I do not have. Unless your brother David. 
or maybe Miss Debbie, right? Or Lucyites, right? Brother Ray, Miss Betty. But you have individuals in your life that are unique to you that I could never reach and won't have access to. I have neighbors, family members, people of my circle of influence uh, that honestly, if I don't share the gospel with them, I don't know who's going to. And the same is true for you. You have lost family members. You have lost neighbors. You have people that you see in the convenience store on a regular basis that if nobody proclaims the truth to them, uh, if you don't proclaim the truth to them, there's a good possibility that nobody else will. Uh, and I want us to see that, that, that the providence of God has you where you are. I mean, that is, we see the, the providence and hand of God most of the time hindsight really, really clearly, don't we? We see, I can look back on my conversion. I can look back on my salvation and just kind of put the pieces together of like how everything was working and the people in my life and how I went to a different church and somebody invited me to go to church where I was able to hear the true gospel and just all these scenarios is super clear hindsight. And we need to recognize that that is where we are now with the people that God has given us right now. Um, that we are a part of the, the chess pieces, that, that God is moving around in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory in his providence, in his control, in his sovereign hand, that he has you at your job, in your family, in your neighborhood for a specific reason of reaching those people, speaking life. And I think that the verse that highlights this so clearly, go to Acts chapter 17. And let's look at verses 26 and 27. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Ethan, won't you read that? Do you see that, that, that God has determined in allotted periods and the boundaries of dwelling places for the very purpose that they should seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far away. I mean, that is a clear message that the, the sovereign providential hand of God has you where you are with the relationships that you have for the purpose of giving life to people, speaking the truth of the, of the gospel to people so that they might come to Christ. We must recognize that we're we are in that season now and we are playing a part prayerfully in the stories of so many people that in the future they will be able to thank and praise God for his sovereign hand and how he placed you in their life for whatever reasons to speak the truth to them. And we are in that time now. And so we want to equip you and engage, to engage those in your life where they are. We want you to take time to build personal relationships with people. Have them over for dinner. Engage in spiritual conversations with them. Ask them honest questions. We want you to linger outside your homes, uh, to check on neighbors, to know them deep enough to meet practical needs, to, uh, to get into their life, to ask them about their kids and grandkids and the problems that they have, any ways that you can pray for them, uh, to just engage them 
Because now, you have people now that you, you, you've never had before and you might not have again in the, in the providential care of God. So I want us to recognize that. And I, I've seen that testimony in my own life. Uh, a personal lawn care, we've had a guy, I, I'm going to walk through a list of just, just pieces. I, I don't know if these guys will ever be saved. But if they were, I, by God's grace, I was able to play some small part as I sowed the seed as God sent them to us. So a personal lawn care. Uh, most of these guys, if I'm being honest, are locked in the cab. They really don't have a choice. Like They're not going to jump out as we're driving. Blake and I have like a 45-minute drive home from Germantown, from our territory. So we just lock in. And you know our radio doesn't work. So everything is set up, right, that they're not going anywhere. We have a captive audience. But Brandon, Brandon didn't respond to the gospel. He asked really good questions. He had a hard background. His parents, I think both of his parents were dead. And then as he was working and leaving personal lawn care, the only solid family member in his life that he had, his grandmother, she passed away. He was very inquisitive and didn't understand why God would create everything for his own glory. And, you know, had some deep questions about the gospel and about Christianity that I, by God's grace, I tried my best. And at the end of the day, I mean, it wasn't, it's not my ability to explain every uh, hard question when it comes to Christianity that saves him is the gospel. So I shared the gospel with him multiple times. I was able to ask questions about his life, what he loves, love video games. There's another guy, RJ, who lives in Waverly, and he was kind of hostile a little bit to Christianity, especially the Bible, thinking that it was kind of like a white man's religion, super skeptical about the Bible. He had a ton of biased presuppositions. And, uh, and so I didn't see any benefit in going toe-to-toe with him about Greek manuscripts and the King James Bible and all those things. He brought some, just some crazy you know, propositions to me and Blake, but I, I shared the gospel with him because at the end of the day, again, it's not my ability to answer all of his questions. It's the gospel. It's, it's, it's the work of Christ that can penetrate a heart. I've had basketball guys over the years, Xavier. Uh, Xavier was here for a while, uh, probably in 2014, and went AWOL for two years and then just called me out of the blue, sent me a text and said, I have some questions about God. Could we meet? And so I, I met with him and we talked and I shared the gospel. I've, we've sat in my office for accumulatively probably six hours and just hammering the Bible and the gospel. And he has yet to be saved. And I'm trying to keep in contact with him. Uh, Jules, Sydney, uh, TJ, these guys that I play basketball with, none of them have professed faith. And some of them might think that they're Christians, but they at least all received the gospel that, while they were with me. And I, if I'm being honest, I'm not really good honestly, at basketball. And I don't really enjoy playing basketball. I think it's, it's, it's fun every now and then. I have a, kind of a sports background. But I got embarrassed in front of those guys. But I thought, okay, I'm going to willingly engage in their world for the purpose of not you know, crossing people over and setting up high scores with 15-year-olds, but sharing the gospel with them. And none of them have yet to be saved. Lander Center, before I came to Lucy, I worked with a guy named Parker Durham. He's an intellectual valedictorian from my high school. And we talked often about Christ and he had such a hard time with evidence or the lack of evidence. And if he said that if God would just send me a sign, I would believe. And, and he still hasn't believed. I texted him two weeks ago because I just thought about him in preparation for this message. And he got the gospel, but he has yet to be saved. Devin Murray, a former atheist, friend of mine who I've requested prayer for, uh, I mean, you see how different these backgrounds are. Devin, uh, Devin was a former atheist who he did drugs, some psychedelic drugs, and now he's an agnostic. He believes in some type of God. 
he said he's a gun to the head atheist. And if you were to put a gun to his head, he would say, yes, there is a God. That's kind of how he framed it. I spent time with him when I went to visit him in Colorado not too long ago, shared the gospel. I've shared the gospel over and over and over. And he has yet to be saved. But I know his story. I know that he didn't have a dad at all growing up. And he had a strong mom who raised him and worked multiple jobs. And, and he is the way he is for, for a reason. And so I cared enough to get into his life to ask him and, and to check on him and to say I'm praying for him. And it's funny, guys, he's a brainiac too. He's a geological engineer uh, in, you know, in Denver, Colorado. And I feel like God gives me all these intellects to show the intellects that it, it obviously doesn't take smarts to be in a relationship with God. Uh, and that's okay. Michelle, my dentist for the next few years at the UT Dental School, I just came. I met her uh, yesterday. Uh, I didn't catapult the conversation with, you know, I had some cavities. And so I didn't say, well, let me tell you about the cavity of the soul. And that's not how I launched into that conversation. It's going to take some time, right? It's gonna, I, I want to I know her story. She asked me, I did tell her, she asked me what I did. Uh, and I said, I was, a, I was a preacher. And I, then I said, I'm a Baptist preacher. So I don't think she has any religious background. So the presupposition in her mind was probably not a good one. Uh, and so you see all these different people that you would not have an opportunity to talk to because it's just unique to, to my life and my patterns and my rhythms. And you have those same people in your life. And God has placed you there for a purpose just to engage them, to ask them questions, to, to hear their story, to know their background. And, you know, we have to balance that with the urgency of the gospel. There is an urgency. People are perishing into an eternal hell and and so we want to recognize the seriousness of that truth, but at the same time, not feel like a complete disobedient failure if every conversation we have with them, we don't ex explain the entire gospel. But working towards people, I, mean, I think that's the goal. You, you have to work towards people in love with the intention of pouncing on the opportunities that God gives you. And just, just get into people's lives. People, I mean, th these are people. People over programs. Steve, a personal lawn care, he's a 49ers fan. And I even have an NFL team really that I follow. I enjoy watching football all together, but I ask him how the 49ers do. And they typically didn't do good. He has, two, he has a girlfriend and two children that he really cares about. He's an extremely family-oriented man. And I've asked him all those questions, not in like a disingenuous way, as if he's some project for me to eventually share the gospel with. And if he doesn't respond, push him away. I've asked those questions because I care and I want to know his background and his story. And so we have to be willing to draw close, to press through the awkwardness, to get to know people. Um, listen, I know it's awkward. I know, I know these conversations, getting to these spiritual conversations are, off, are awkward, but we must press forward into people's lives with the intention of sharing the gospel. And it, it will present itself in many ways. I want to encourage us too to think about success. In evangelism, how do we measure or gauge success in our evangelistic efforts? Um, ultimately, success in evangelism is just sharing the gospel. It's not numbers. It's not we, we can't measure baptisms or numbers or uh, count noses at events and say we've been successful in our evangelism because at the end of the day. Success is just sharing. It's moving towards people in love and being intentional and obedient uh, to love our neighbor as God has told us. Uh, and it's not whether or not the person you share with has an immediate response. I think sometimes we, you know, we've worked up the courage and we, we interject the spiritual conversation and it's just, just a dud. And we think, oh, 
failure. No, you, you sowed the seed of the gospel. Whether or not they respond right then is not the measure of success. It's that you're obedient to the Lord. Because at the end of the day, we are not the ones who give the growth, are we? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What is then Paul? What is Apollos? You know, it's, it's Apollos watered, Paul planted, but who gave the growth? It's God that gave the growth. It doesn't matter who, who sows or waters. Uh, and God does that in his great timing. A pastor told a story about a man named Luke Short. He was a New England um, farmer who lived to be a, a hundred years old. And sometime in the 1700s, he was sitting in the fields contemplating his long life. And as he did, he recalled a sermon that he had heard in Dartmouth, England, in a church when he was a boy before he had sailed to America. And the horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed upon his heart as he contemplated the words he had heard so long ago, and he was converted. As the Spirit brought the words of that sermon of the Word of God 85 years later to his heart, while he was under the preaching of John Flavel in England, 85 years, the seed of the gospel lay dormant until God sprang life up. And so we, we can't measure our success by whether or not we get immediate response or how many decisions we want to count. We, we, need, to, we need to make space in our evangelism for the Ezekiels, for the Adoniram Judsons, and William Carey's who labored for years without seeing a convert. I think about Miss Jenny Porter who prayed for Mr. Art. For years, the seed lay dormant until God gave it life. And so raise your hand if you were saved the first time you shared the gospel. None of us. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm not saying it won't happen. We should, uh, we should expect people to be saved when the gospel is shared. Not because of us, but because of God. But that is not the normative way. It typically takes time. And we have to be patient. We have to be patient and understand that only God can do that. Listen, I've said this, and I'll keep saying, we cannot convict sinners. It's not my words that's convicting. It's the word of God that's convicting. I cannot, you think about what happens in salvation and just the audacity to think that I can somehow produce that by a winsome explanation of the gospel. We're talking about being spiritually dead and somebody bringing that, that dead soul to life. And that is, that is God who does that. Only the Spirit of God can bring conviction. That's his role as he works in accordance with his truth. And for me, that's, I mean, I remember when I, you know, people started saying that and I started coming to that realization. I thought that is the most freeing thing that could ever be, that I'm not responsible for any results, that I can just be faithful to sow the seed and God can give life as he sees fit. We call people to repentance. They have to respond to the gospel. They have to surrender. We have to call them to do that. But I don't lead them in repentance, right? I, I explain to them, what is repentance? You have to turn. You have to call out to God for mercy. And I, and I let the Lord do his work. I, it, it's freeing for me that I don't, I don't have to coerce them or manipulate them, right? To say, saying something that they don't mean or a, a prayer that they don't understand. I can just trust the Lord to do that. And that, that's freeing for us. That frees us up to, like, to, to let that guilt to the side that it's, it's not up to us for, for the results. It's up to the Lord. We just trust God for the results in evangelism. And lastly, before I, I talk about some super practical matters, 
Um, this is why prayer must precede method. We must take serious the call to persevere in our praying for unbelievers. Um, there has to be, like when we talk about creating a culture of evangelism where it's just normal, we have to be talking about lost people, bringing up lost people, praying for lost people. Uh, this issue, uh, spiritual matters, the spiritual condition of unbelievers, that has to be at the forefront of our prayer meetings. It has to be at the forefront. I mean, there are a lot of things to pray for and a lot of things that we're commanded to pray for and it's beneficial to pray for. But this should take center stage in our praying, begging the Lord to do that great work of salvation. Our prayer meetings must be focused on that. So let me explain. So let me just practically. So what are some methods that, that don't seem to be working, right? What are some methods that are better than others? Uh, who would agree that the culture has drastically changed in the past 20 years? In so many ways, the culture has changed and people have changed. Uh, at one time, there was a social benefit to being at church. You realize that? Like in the community, you had to be a part of, of a church. I mean, but today that just doesn't exist. And in some ways, listen, in some ways, that's a good thing. In some ways, there's a more clear line being drawn between what is a believer, what is an unbeliever. I don't rejoice that unbelievers are less willing to come to church. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. We need to invite them, invite them to come. But there is a kind of a line of demarcation that's being drawn in the sand of unbelievers and believers. And we can, we can say that's a good thing, that maybe there will be more, less falsely assured believers. But most of the time, lost people just don't want to come to church. Uh, they don't want to come to events. Like in, in the era of Billy Graham, you could pop up a tent and that thing would be full for people to come and hear preaching. And, and for the majority of our culture, that, that has changed. The lost people are way less likely to come to church. Um, people's categories are different. Like, okay, so if I were to go on the street 20 years ago and I were to say, you know, you're under the judgment of God, I would use the term God, they would have an understanding of what the Bible means by God to some degree. Uh, when I said sin, right, that was a category in their mind uh, that was there. And today, the, those categories are being lost. And in evangelism, we, we just can't assume that people have that, those preconceptions, those preconceived notions in the back of their mind that they can connect those dots. That, oh yeah, he's talking about the God of the Bible. He's talking about my sin, my rebellion against God. And that's kind of shifted. Door-to-door uh, -door is le less e effective, I feel like. Uh, the culture is more individualistic. People are spending less time outdoors, less open doors for neighbors, and more time indoors. And that's a, that's a generational shift. And so door-to-door -door does not seem very effective because it's seen in today's culture as intrusive and offensive. And, and I, if I'm being honest, when the Jehovah's Witness knock on my door, I just think, just leave. <laughs> I know I need to witness to them, but that's even ingrained in me. I just, I just, you know, my natural tendency is to go in the house, lock the door uh, and, you know, be in my little castle. So that, that's kind of a generational shift. And I, so I think that the evangelism methods that are more fruitful are more personal, uh, that they take time to build relationships uh, that, you, you know, you ha almost have to get to know someone for them to let down their barrier. And I understand to some degree people are the same. 
in all generation, right? The, the heart is evil above all else, and people are, are essentially the same. But these, some of these categories in our generations, I think it's helpful to us to think through. And so one of the best ways that I'm going to advocate evangelism is hospitality. It's just opening our home, building relationships, coming for a meal, coming for a movie. Um, and I think hospitality is one way to do it. And if I'm being honest, Hillary and I have not done a we're very convicted about this, uh, about using our home and leveraging it for the glory of God, that uh, uh, the earth is mine and the fullness thereof, says the Lord. And so that includes the home in which we live. And so it has to be leveraged. And so I'm going to recommend a book by Rosaria Butterfield. I have a picture of it. Uh, it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. This book is so good. Um, it is so helpful. Rosaria Butterfield, a former lesbian professor at Syracuse University, God used the hospitality of a pastor and his wife to just drastically convert her. And I want to read one or two lines out of it. Um, it it's just super powerful and very challenging. Uh, she says, talking about hospitality, the truly hospitable aren't embarrassed to keep friendships with people who are different. They don't buy the world's bunk about this. They know that there's a difference between acceptance and approval, and they courageously accept and respect people who think differently for, from them. They don't worry that others will interpret their friendship. Jesus dined with sinners, but he did not sin with sinners. He lived in the world, but he did not live like the world. And this is the Jesus paradox. She goes on to explain her personal testimony in the book. And um, let's see. She says, um, so what, let me just give you a quick backstory. A lesbian professor at Syracuse wanted to find out about the Bible and just defeat their arguments. And so she was honest enough to say, I don't know what it means. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. She reached out to this pastor. Uh, this, the pastor invited her in her home and shared the gospel. She ate dinner with him on a regular basis and she was eventually saved. And she says, nothing about that night, the first night that she came in to his home, uh, nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script. Nothing happened in the way I expected it. Not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals or long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus This one simple in this one simple Christian home made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's, knife's edge, edge of my choice sexual sin. The Christian home was where I wrestled with my sexual identity and where I, I first dared to ask the question, is being a lesbian who I really am or is it the fall of Adam that made me this way? And so her story is intertwined in this book and is very challenging and convicting. Um, and she just says, start small, just, just in, invite your neighbors ever build relationships, uh, in small ways. Hospitality is a way that unbelievers can put to pieces the, the pro proclamations that we have made about Christianity, that they can put meat on the bones of our professions, that they can see a Christian husband, that they can see a Christian mom, 
They can see a Christian father and mother, a Christian home. They can see that dynamic. They can have a visible theater to evaluate whether or not the claims of Christianity have any bearing whatsoever on the way that we live our day-to-day life. I thought about Job 42.5, and it's a different application, but Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, speaking of the Lord. And in the same way, hospitality is a way that unbelievers have heard the claims of Christianity, but now they see it in action. And so, um, and so just some practical wisdom to, to end with. How do, we, how do we do this? How do we engage? How do we engage them with the word? Um, invite them just to Bible studies, right? There are tools that you can use to say, hey, let's look at the book of Mark for the next six weeks. Christianity Explained is what it's called. And we'll have some resources um, by, by Sunday, uh, that'll be here. Christianity Explained. It's just a six-week six week study. You can ask them, hey, study the word with me. Um, invite them to church. Uh, ask them about their spiritual religious beliefs. Uh, be a good listener and intently listen to their, to their story, their background. Don't assume that they know anything, even if they use terms like God and Jesus and faith. Uh, offer literature. I can't tell you how many books I've given to those basketball guys, hoping that it would spark some discussion. Uh, between us, the, you know, literature, a book or an article sometimes can be used as a middleman of conversation in between believers and unbelievers. Like, hey, what do you think about that article I sent you? What do you think about some of those claims? What do you think about chapter one? They can just, it's just a way to, to, right, to create some type of conversation. Um, but lastly, I think we should just, we should, we should pray. Uh, I've already read, you know, I've already emphasized that, uh, but a part, man, a God just accomplishes his purpose through the fervent prayers of his people. And uh, we need help. I need help in being accountable. Um, Even in our community groups, I would encourage you just bring up relationships. And we do, we try and do that in our groups. How's the relationship with so-and-so going? Are you moving forward in that? Have you engaged them? And all of us have different stories from unique individuals that, right, that are unique to us. And so we want to be faithful to pray for those and to intercede by name for those people in our groups and in our time of prayer. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin Place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.